Guys, welcome again to the Beautiful Boxing Podcast. No idea what episode number we're on now. I'm hoping I'm in the 80s. I think the target was to do 100 before the lockdowns lifted. And boxing has been a mistress that just will not sleep with me on this one. So I've absolutely struggled. Um, no shame in that. But what I can say is, if you don't get to 90, I feel like a failure. But today, just wanted to do something different. and Well, not different, but kind of different and the same. So bring Riku back because he feels he didn't get me last time. So he's going to have to get me this time. Um, always good to have him. As you know, he's a, he's a very good friend of mine. Big supporter of the podcast. Big supporter of a lot of the things I do in the sport. So I appreciate his support. But I think I got something wrong last time where he didn't really have... He didn't really have a, a respectful introduction and I have to apologise for that. That's 100% my fault. So we're going to do it right this time. Mate, welcome back. <laughs> pretty trap music. I, I don't know how you found that. Uh, yes, that's that's pretty impressive. Mate, you I, had to give I you a taste of home. Yeah, I, I think most people would have thought that that was Spanish or something else weird or not being able to face that language. So indeed, it is Finnish rap music. So kudos to Terry for finding niche Finnish music. But it's weird because it's almost like they just rap over anything. Like, like there's no... There's no concept of it has to have a bit of boom bap or there's no actual genre. It's just like we find track, find track, yeah. rap over it. Yeah, exactly. And uh, while the lyrics tend to be pretty poor in Finnish rap music, so for reasons, for those reasons, I've always been more of a fan of English language, hip hop and rap music. I will find that for you next time. Mate. So how have you been? How's the <laughs> lockdown been for you? Yeah, good just been abiding by the rules I'm like Dominic Cummings and staying at home and uh, it's been very busy at work and I think a lot of people are facing this um, where it's quite hard to balance home and work life because you are in the same environment all the time so it's just easier to do long days and you feel like you you have to be on call all the time so time has gone very quickly and I think it must be six weeks or something since we did our last episode and it only feels like a few weeks ago, partly because not much has happened since in terms of boxing, at least. It's a weird one. I've been here, like we talked about this off air, and I sit there and I go, the lockdown feels like it's over. Um, social distancing feels like something that's going to have a far longer tail. Like, I, I've got hay fever. I was riding yesterday. And as I'm riding, I'm having a sneezing fit. And the looks on people's faces as my nose starts to disintegrate. <laughs> Mate, you hear me? You'd have thought I was running around with an AK-47 fully loaded. <laughs> well, that's a good tactic to get a seat on the tube going forward. So anybody uh, put notes and make sure you sneeze if you want to seat on the tube or train, however you can use. Oh, man, I've just... The stuff I've seen, like, you got people running around like fucking... Like they're in Daft Punk with all sorts of mad visors and whatnot, man. It's like... <laughs> <laughs> Project Fear was a success. They, they have become fashion statements, so it's only a matter of time until Broner starts rocking a Louis Vuitton uh, face mask. 
I don't even know. So I don't know where this is going. So <laughs> part of me doesn't think I'll get to 100 episodes before we're all kind of back to work or back to this, back to that. But I'm confident I'll get to 100 episodes <laughs> before we see a boxing bout. That's for sure. Yeah. Uh, my sense is probably similar to yours that even when you look at Premier League's project restart and more people testing positive today, it's not such an easy thing to do that we test everybody uh, from the outset and then sort of ensure that they're not infected and then allow sporting events to go on. Uh, it's it's just not as easily done and people talk about testing, but also testing resources. There's a shortage of people that can do these tests and I don't think the home tests that have been discussed are probably robust enough to have tested and then allow two men to be grappling in the ring and punching each other. Mate, spot on. I, I just, I don't see how all of this works because even if you have a hierarchy of sports and you go, how many tests do you need for the Premier League? It's thousands. How many do you need for rugby to come back? Thousands. Cricket, thousands. So by the time you've come down that list, boxing's a long way down. And you know what promoters will be like? They'll just say, right, you got to pay for your own testing or you don't box. Well, exactly. I mean, I think the Premier League uh, collectively spends 38 million, 24 million, I can't remember, but it's in the tens of millions of pounds to buy all the testing from a Hong Kong-based company. And boxing doesn't have that same collective organisation that looks after sports. So even if it's Eddie, Frank, Al Heyman, buying tens of thousands, you know, a thousand or ten thousand tests, they would have to front up so much capital from the outset that it doesn't make it viable for them to, you know, do, because it's a gamble at the end of the day. That's well, but let's not, let's not, let's not drift too much. And I know you, this is your, your time to get me on the ropes. And like, I legit have no idea what's coming. So I couldn't even prepare in advance. Feels like we have a bo- like a bit of a boxing social interview at the moment. I <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm not going to necessarily try and get you on the ropes. What I'll do is I'll ask you questions that are probably touching upon broadly boxing, but the boxing ecosystem and a lot of it's focused on what happened during the lockdown period and what's going to happen since. Uh, and some are just interesting points that. I think it's conversations we've had off air that I think are probably worth talking about just um, in terms of what's going to happen and some of the stuff you haven't outlined in podcasts. So, yeah, I thought let's have a bit of a good discussion because <laughs> getting you on the ropes at the moment is challenging because there isn't boxing, so I can't query your views on boxing or anything particular. But, yeah, it's more a combination of things that I'd like to hear you talk about that a bit like your Mike Tyson episode where it was a mishmash. So I'll, I'll, <laughs> so I'll uh, jump into it straight away and uh, you and some of the listeners might have seen yesterday there was a piece in the FT about his own raising capital um, to cover some of the losses. Um, and I think I saw a lot of people on social media gloating about this. Um, probably haven't read the article I mean, the bottom of the article did say they were looking to raise 500 million before the pandemic, but there had been a big need to raise more money as a result of the pandemic. Um, so, what's your what's your take on that? And I mean, 
we both work in industries where we know quite a bit about this world. So raising capital for me, debt capital as a streaming service isn't necessarily out of the ordinary and doesn't imply to me that the zone are going bust. But yeah, they they are having problems due to their model. So where do you see this going and what's your take on that news? Well, um, so first things first, we want the zone to win. If you're a real boxing fan, uh, forget the real, if you're just a fan of boxing in general, you want the zone to win because the zone came and they forced everyone else to up their game, right? Let's be honest. We're, and we're coming up to that two year anniversary of Hearn's announcement. It must have been around this time two years ago. And don't quote me on that. But it feels September like September time, I think, maybe, or so September was, was the launch. In the fall. September was the oh, launch. Yes. But remember he did the press conference where he announced the, the partnership. And that might have been May, June time in twenty eighteen. And even yeah, even at that right. time, I was thinking back and I I wrote something on the old platform about this. And I think much of that stuff is still true. When you're a company like The Zone, what you're really trying to do is you're trying to stay ahead of this avalanche of debt. It's like surfing, right? You've got this big wave of debt that you're just trying to successfully surf. And the key thing is you've got to have a few wins. There's got to be moments where you, know, you stay in control, you stay on top of your board, so to speak. And I don't think The Zone have done that. And I think John Skipper's alluded to this before. And I think they've made a couple of mistakes. One, they aimed to arrive at the top. And so that puts a lot of pressure on you immediately. If, if I was advising the zone, my advice would have been just start small. Prove your concept. Even if you have to get some, some money ball signing, some guys who, who can box, but for one reason or another, they don't quite hold it together. You know, I would have had a few of those guys. I would have tested out my concept. Because you'd have got subscribers anyway. And this is the problem. So would you have got the same number of subscribers by signing Canelo, Golovkin, and the list goes on, as you would have done for signing lower-tier guys, for signing a Dominic Brazil, for signing a, a guy like a, like a Dave Allen? I don't know. But I don't think the gap is as great as people suggest. So I think they've overpaid for what they were trying to do. And... If you remember back to two years ago, I think we discussed this between ourselves and we discussed it on the New Age Boxing podcast. It was always a two-year proof of concept for zone because they needed something to tide them over till the rights came up. The problem is boxing has been so expensive for them that even if the rights come up, you wonder if they've got the war chest to actually bid and compete. And the ESPN aren't stupid, so ESPN have kind of set them up for this. And they've said, look, keep paying these silly fees because we know that you're trying to get what we've got, but we can't let you. So even before this pandemic, as you said before, we had the problem of the zone needing a hit. They needed, a, they needed that seminal fight. Because if you remember, Joshua Ruiz 2, they only bought the rights fees for. They didn't have full control of the event. They did for Joshua Ruiz one, but then the outcome went against their plans. And now you're in a position where you're saying, okay, so of the DAZN roster, apart from Canelo, who are you really banking on? Because they don't really have Joshua yet, because Joshua's still a skyboxer. And the answer is probably not anyone. Golovkin's 38 years old, and you're starting to see grey hairs on Golovkin. So you can't keep 
flogging that horse. And then of the young guys coming up, you know, they're conspiring to shoot themselves in the foot. I saw Ammo Williams had done his, his sparring video, and that's done his reputation. No end of harm. So you've got this thing where the zone don't have any prize assets, yet they've got a mounting debt platform. And if I'm, if I'm John Skipper, if I'm Joel Markovich, Markovsky, sorry, if I'm, if I'm any of those guys at the zone right now, I'm saying to myself, how have we ended up here? You know, how, how have we ended up here? We had Hearn and we had De La Hoya. And De La Hoya will look at him and go, well, you got this Eddie Hearn guy. And he hasn't done anything for you. And no one in boxing wants to admit that. Hearn has taken the zone's money and basically blown it. Because he hasn't brought anything to the table that they need. Meanwhile, ESPN got fury. They got, I mean, they got everything they wanted. They got Gaza, Josh Taylor. They're stable, strong. They've still got Crawford. ESPN has a stronger roster than DAZN. And boxing is just another sport for them. Um, Fox, PBC, far stronger than DAZN. You've got the two Charlo brothers as a minimum. Then throw in those welterweights they've got as well. And Deontay Wilder. And so DAZN's in trouble. To the point where you've got to pull back from this experiment and say, we're not paying the city purses anymore. Number one. Number two, all our fights are competitive fights. Like, forget, forget these people wanting to have a few soft tune-ups and things like that. There should be no development fights, in my opinion. Like all this thing that he's learning his trade, it's ridiculous. I can't pay someone $50,000 to learn their trade. I just can't. I can't pay someone $200,000 and you're telling me he's still learning his trade. You know, the fans out there demand more. So the minute you call yourself a professional boxer, you're a tradesman. You should be getting some experience, but you shouldn't be learning your trade. If you're having to learn on the job, you turned over too early and people shouldn't be signing you. But I think in summary, zone having to raise half a billion on top of the, I'm sure they've got about 700 million of additional debt they're sat on. Yeah, something like that. Really what you're looking at, mate, is you're, you're looking, th th this is an exit now. This is either we're going to share the risk or we're getting out. They're, they're, they're the only two options. And it's not a strong enough proposition that you can look at a profitable exit. And it's not an attractive enough proposition that you can look at a partnership. So I have no idea what you do as the zone. I have a feeling they'll just carry on regardless. But it's definitely in a bad way where you're like, I, I don't want to say they're on life support yet, but it's heading that way. Yeah, I think they're looking for to sell equity to raise the money, um, and obviously they backed by a Russian billionaire, UK-based Russian billionaire. Uh, so it's probably looking like an excess. Just for context, Netflix are looking to raise a billion pounds to to get more original content, and they have about fourteen billion of debt. I think the difference between the Zone and Netflix's model is that every time the zone raises and spends money, it doesn't generate back catalog of content. Whereas when Netflix does it, they get original programming, which can drive subscribers and is there for a long time. I think with the zone, they probably a bit too early for this concept. So they, so they were the first one to really have this sort of streaming 
of live sports and go all in on that. And maybe it isn't the, maybe now isn't the time for that. Maybe it's more sort of a hybrid model where you have an Amazon Prime, where you have live content, and then you also have a big back catalogue of films and other programming. And maybe that's the model that could be more successful and more resilient, particularly when there isn't live sports, whether it's the summertime or whether there's a pandemic or anything else that's happening. To t- turn the question around, what are you buying when you buy the zone? Exactly. What is it you're actually buying? Let's 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 really break this down. Am I buying Canelo? Not really, because Canelo could retire whenever he wants. Am I buying Joshua? No. Joshua has a contract with Sky and a contract with Matchroom. So I'm not buying him. I seem to be buying people like Sergio Mora and a lot of low-level fighters that have nowhere else to go. That's the challenge here. What are you buying when you buy the zone? You're not buying I, guaranteed I, fights. So I'll give you an example. If I buy ESPN, I'm buying a library. I'm buying contracted rights with I mean, blue chip sports. There are all these things I'm buying when I buy into ESPN. That's why Disney bought them. The zone doesn't seem to have any of that. Well, definitely not in the US and the UK. They don't have any of that. Abroad, maybe. Japan, obviously, there's a growth market for them. So the question becomes, what are you buying? Because you're really selling this on the prospect that you can crack America and you can crack the United Kingdom. And I don't see any evidence of that. And they definitely don't have any key assets in either of those two markets. Yeah, they did have expansion plans to the UK, which announced just a bit before lockdown which I imagine have been put on hold. It might be that they might be able to profit um, from the lockdown if they move to the UK and there's some assets for sale for cheaper and contracts have been renegotiated, whether that's rugby or F1 or something else. But yeah, it, it feels like you have to invest a lot more money into the zone to make it work and also get, a real anchor sport, which boxing isn't. Effectively, the zone to me is, it's like the box nation on a global scale, and we know all know what happened with box nation. It's an expensive way to realise boxing's a really small sport. Yes. Yes, and I, I completely agree. It is an e-sport, and that's why when people were, or when Eddie Hearn was tweeting about the computer game, for boxing, <laughs> I was one of the few people on Twitter saying it just won't work because most boxing fans aren't willing to spend 50 quid on tickets. Um, so I can't see them spending money on computer games either. And it's such a niche sport that it's just not going to work if ESPN do a, or sorry, EA Sports do a computer game on boxing. Who's going to want to play that? Not, not enough people, I think. Guy's an absolute idiot. Like, I think he's just doing anything to make noise. This, this is what happens when you have, in the zone, you have people who are pretty disciplined in how they do business, right? Yeah. Um, I know a couple of the guys that work for them, you know, their office isn't too far from where I live. So there are a few guys that I know that work there, and I know a few guys that have worked for the Perform Group. And they're quite straight-going people, down the tram lines and so forth. So... This idea that Eddie Hearn can just talk his way in and out of any situation for them is grating because they're like, well, mate, it's a lot of talk. 
but we see the numbers, we see the, the outcome, and right now you're not really doing anything for us. And I think that's the sense at the moment, at least with De La Hoya. De La Hoya brought them Canelo and said, this guy will fight on your platform every time, guaranteed. Whereas Hearn was like, I can't get Joshua yet, but please, please bear with me. And I imagine Joshua's team are watching what's happening with the zone going, we're really going to be fighting on an app. An app that not many people have, clearly. And if they've got any sense of wanting to achieve greatness or commercial exposure, you're looking at that going, no, 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 I'm happy on Sky Sports and I'm happy on Showtime because that's where my profile grew the most. Yeah, I agree. And it's the same in the US. A while ago when I was speaking to Steven Espinosa, he was saying that days are... As a fighter, if you want to get endorsements, if you want to get outside of boxing earnings, it's very hard to do that when you're doing it on a DAZN rather than doing it on a Showtime, HBO, ESPN, Fox, because it doesn't have the same pulling power. And it doesn't have the same marquee halo effect that you would have fighting with one of these established cable networks. But if you, if you actually look at the, what's happened in this lockdown, the zone and sky have fallen through the floor because their whole proposition is we will give you the best live content out there. And if you look at who really rose from nowhere, BT Sport rose from nowhere. ESPN's risen from nowhere. Why? Because ESPN just said, we've got this massive archive of stuff that's really interesting because we've been a sports channel for long enough that we understand, we get this. We understand that fans will want to watch the NBA Finals, and if it's a great one, five years down the line, they'll want to hear all the people involved tell us what happened. So they've always had that kind of cycle of, we broadcast the achievement, we do the documentaries on them, so that way you can always revisit it. Because deep down, none of us ever wants to watch something we've seen before whole. I don't want to watch a full fight again. I don't need to. I saw it the first time. Same with football. I don't watch a whole game back. It doesn't make any sense. But I will want to see someone lay up, lay some insight, some analysis, something new over it so I can get, you know, add a bit of colour to it. And Zone don't have that. Sky definitely don't have that. And that's why BT Sport, I don't, I don't imagine many people suspended their BT Sport subscriptions because the content's been so good. And then if you look at it in the and US... You also have, and you also have the Bundesliga now on BT Sports. It's the only football you can get of any quality. So it's been a massive own goal for, for like that side of the line, the kind of sky and the zone line. Been an absolute disaster. Meanwhile, you've got BT Sport, ESPN, just loving life at the moment. Bob Arum, absolutely glowing, isn't he? Because he knows he's winning the war against the zone. Yeah, definitely. I, I also think, to your point about watching old fights, it's very hard to build a narrative post-fight or sort of get people really excited about what happened in the past before a fight because there isn't often an interesting enough backstory. And if you think about uh, The Last Dance, the documentary on Michael Jordan, Chicago Bulls, which has been a big hit on Netflix, you can do that more effectively and get people to buy into a story in a sport which is I guess federalized so you have a league rather than doing it in boxing because it's often a one-off event and that's it there isn't that same 
long rivalry and they isn't that same way you can track a career in the same way in a like-for-like manner that you can do in basketball or any other sport which is in a league format. Mate, you bang on. And that's why I think the future of boxing is away from governing bodies. I think the future of boxing will be someone that comes up with a UFC-type model that says, do you know what? We're just going to have our belts in our weight classes. This is what we're going to pay our fighters. And it will take years, but over time, people will just go, right, this is the only show in town. It's the same way that you can be Bellator champion, and it's nice, but you always say, what would that Bellator champion do in the UFC? I don't think you ever do it the other way around. And that's there's going to be someone might be a promoter, might be a broadcaster who realizes that's how it works because fans can get behind a franchise. Fighters come and go, but that franchise you can be a fan of for as long as you want. Well, I guess that's what Heyman tried to do with the PBC and PBC belt. Um, but it, I don't think he went far enough and that's one of the challenges that you have to be willing to go pretty far and clean the slate. So with Dana White Zoo for boxing, which he was talking about a while ago, and I think that's gone on hold anyways. There, I think the idea was that he was going to sign a lot of young fighters and get them to do the model that you're talking about because you can't get fighters uh, in their 30s because they have different uh, objects and they have different desires to the young guys. So you need to go out buy or get young guys in that really buy into the idea of having that federation spouse and fighting in a federation and train their mindset so that rather than chasing the WBC belts, they'll be chasing that federation spouse and just be happy in that confined environment. If I'm a young boxer, I'd just see what's happened to Dillian and I'd say, I'm on board for anything that's different because these governing bodies will just do what they want and they don't care about the human damage that comes as a result of it. And that's the frustrating thing, actually. And this is why you want someone to do what Kerry Packer did with cricket in the 70s, where you just go, right, here's a new way of doing things. Because even if you fail, you'll move the sports on immeasurably. And you just need someone with deep enough pockets to do that. But boxing, like I said, is such a small sport. And the contribution required to do that is so outsized relative to the value of the sport that who the hell would want to waste their money? Yeah, agreed. I mean, it, we look at what happened with the World Boxing Super Series and they how they've been doing. It's a very hard thing to do profitably um, and then also to get somebody to buy into that. So who's going to area unless you do like the UFC and just have your own network. But that comes with a lot of cost and financial risk. Yep. Uh, okay. Yeah. Uh, just thinking about other things I've been so I was listening to Tress Dixon's podcast yesterday um, which I quite like his podcast I think he's doing a really good job of interviewing some interesting characters and he always goes on about the cost of running the podcast the you know how it's important that he's been supported throughout this pandemic and you as a professional podcast or fairly professional podcast I'd say uh, can you explain that to me and other people listening? Why is it so expensive to run a podcast once you have the equipment? And you do, it's apart from the time, uh, you know, the time investment, what's the financial investment that goes into that? 
Um, just like to say, mine sound better than Tris Dixon's. So if you need some tips on getting his audio crispy, right here, right now. No, that is that is true. That is actually true. <laughs> Look, I think what Tris Dixon needs money for will be things like going over to interview people. Now, it's interesting we talk about podcasts in an era where Joe Rogan's inked a deal for somewhere north of $100 million right, with Spotify. And I think that's been game-changing in the podcast world. And I've, t- I've talked to a couple of people that do podcasts around this. And if you think about this, and I don't want to sound arrogant, so forgive me here. People will listen to me for about 40 to 60 minutes a week. Some weeks, like the Larry episode, I've got you for 180 minutes. I've seen the stats. Most people got through at least two hours of that podcast. Now, how many Drake albums is that? Two? Two, yeah. So what, if, you, if, you, if you're someone like Spotify now, you're looking at your, your model going, I'm paying Drake all this money for an album that people are going to be able to skip through. So they only listen to two or three tracks in totality. That doesn't give me a window to get adverts in. But this, this beautiful boxing podcast, people are listening for 34 minutes out of 36. I can put adverts in this somewhere if they don't want to join the premium service. I can insert adverts. And so the model of commercializing audio content, because that's what we're talking about here, whether it's music, it's podcasting, it's news, it doesn't matter. It's all audio content. So the process of commercializing audio content now the battleground now is these podcasts. Joe's obviously a lot further down the line than I am, and he has a broader appeal. But it's forced us all to reconsider, because I now look and go, how much boxing do I really want to dedicate my time to? When there are real numbers, there's real interest, and there's real potential revenue, looking beyond boxing, still having a core of boxing, but starting to just stretch where those boundaries are. And so... In a sense, podcasting's become cool. So that's the first thing to remember. The second thing to remember about podcasting is the ones that do well give. They give. And what I mean by that is take a podcast like Carl Froch. Carl Froch's podcast is just about Carl Froch. Yeah. It's, it's him wanting to tell you something. He's not in it with you. He's just throwing it at you and telling you, I'm Carl Froch, therefore you will listen. It was the same when Eddie Hearn did that no passion, no point. It was just preachy and talky, and they were trash. These things aren't doing great numbers. You know, look, here's an example. What, what, what is this black-eyed barbershop thing that these guys are doing on Zoom, right? Just, just look at that. I look at those numbers, and I'm like, I do that in 30 minutes. Four or five days down the line, I'm like, I do those numbers in 30 minutes. Not because I'm better than anyone, but because I just give and I say, do you know what? My four years podcasting has probably cost me relationships I have in the sport. But if it did, they weren't real relationships anyway, so quite glad to be rid of them. But I think of those four years, I've given more than most people do in boxing podcasts. And I've done it without being a, a hateful rock thrower who's just venting against the sport. I've always said, look, my job is to give you guys something you're not getting elsewhere. I don't need to do this. 
You know that. My life is such that I don't need to do this. I enjoy mm-hmm. doing it, and I enjoy giving back. And so when you have a podcast model that's giving like that, Joe Rogan gives. Because he gets people on, and he goes, I'm going to give you a platform to share your perspective with my audience. They'll like you. I'm getting you on because I think my audience will like you. And, and I respect that. So all the good podcasts, the Peter Crouch one as well, is quite a giving podcast because he shares a lot of things that other people are too scared to share. They're the podcasts that do numbers. When it's about you as an individual and you just want to you just want to be a podcast, you want to have one, you want the, the fame that comes with it, you won't last because the, the growth curve is so slow initially that if you don't enjoy it, you can't do it. Now, look at Tris. I've seen Tris do interviews of varying quality. Now, Tris is a real boxing journalist. Let's not get that confused. He's not, a, he's not a guy just writing stuff in his bedroom and shit like that. He, he's paid his dues. I remember he did an episode with Geraldine Davis, who's a lovely lady, actually. Um, got a lot of time for her. And they were talking about, you have to have done your time. And Tris Dixon's done his time. And he deserves, to an extent, a podcast. But he hasn't got a right to make an income from a podcast. But to do that, the fans have to anoint you. The fans have to say, you are the guy who represents our feelings and our views in the sport. He's not that guy. He's, he's too much of an insider. And so when we come back to, when we come back to this, you know, how's he going to make money? What he's saying is, I want to be a professional podcaster. Therefore, someone has to pay me to produce this content because I could be doing other things. And my view is, if the fans aren't saying you're the guy, then what do you do? Because you don't want to hide it behind a paywall because no, no podcast is worth that. Like, even if I charged a penny, I'd probably lose 60% of my audience. Just saying, look, guys, That's if you want true. to pay a penny, I'd lose 60% of my audience. They'd sooner, they'd sooner I was sponsored, they were sooner, they'd be happy if I had adverts and I started charging because that's the point. They're like, look, the respect we have for you comes to the fact that you take time out of your day to do this. And that's what makes podcasting unique. And so just to, just to box that all off, good luck to Tris Dixon. I wish him nothing but the best. If he gets paid to do it, fantastic. I'll be there applauding him and congratulating him. But no one has a divine right to get rich podcasting if the rogan model is anything to show jesus you've really got to put in years and years of work how much did the studio cost Riku? like have you ever seen the video of of his studio yeah yeah that's and the rental staff the sound engineers he's got two or three people there working and he's got a whole machine behind that as well so that's not cheap operation at all but it's professional and i think you can attract the quality of guests that Rogan has because you are a professional setup as well. Mm-hmm. Someone like somebody that we disagree on how uh, interesting they are, but Malcolm Gladwell, he's not going to come to a podcast done in somebody's bedroom, is it? And this is the limiting factor on boxing podcasting. It's no one has that facility. Like, look, if, if I had a Joe Rogan style facility, I'd be recording every day because it's like an office. And I remember watching the, the video of them putting it together. Like he's got, like the, the desk he uses is custom made. I think the, 
the mic the mic booms so the so the things that hold the mic up they might even be custom made themselves he he's elevated podcasting to this level that is insane the content itself anyone can do but it's everything around it that's really polished and slick and no one's there yet and tris definitely isn't there because like you're you're giving us richard towers interviews and it genuinely feels like you put a dictaphone on a table in a restaurant and I don't know if I can pay you for that because that doesn't sound like you've tried that hard. But that doesn't mean it's a bad episode. It just means it's hard to listen to. But I have the same challenges, and I talk to Porky about this all the time. I say, mate, give me better audio. I will listen to everything you do. You know, he... And he's going to listen to this and he's going to pull me up on this. But with Pork, he tries to be too cool doing it. Oh, yeah, I'll just speak to this guy while I'm driving or I'll speak to this guy while I'm eating my food. It shows how cool I am. Actually, it doesn't. Like, what would be really cool, and I think he can do this, is if Porky just sat down, literally tied himself into a chair and just recorded. Because he has, he has the best content. He has better content than me most weeks in terms of it being interesting and him having really ripped into the numbers. But it's so hard to listen to that you get five minutes in and you're like, I'm only going this far and further because I'm a friend of yours. So I've, I've spoken to him about this and I've said, mate, just up the audio quality of your podcast and you will treble your audience immediately, if not sooner. Yeah, we, I've had the same conversations with uh, Porky as well. But actually in lockdown terms, his numbers are doing really well and holding up steady, which is good to see. It's just the content. Of, I mean, the quality of the audio. That hold on, hold on. No, no, wait, wait, wait. It's funny how everyone else's numbers have been consistent in the lockdown. It's funny how most people's numbers have gone up in the lockdown when people have more time. Yet the big outlets' numbers have gone down in the lockdown. And not, not, not just kind of a little bit down, almost like they're, they're losing numbers to us. It's like their numbers are just disappearing into nothing it's almost like before the lockdown there were five million boxing fans in this country and during this lockdown we found out that there were fifty thousand, and now we're all running around trying to find four hundred fifty thousand people that have seemingly flown over the bermuda triangle and disappeared you know but it goes to show the people who are consistent and the people who are truthful tend to last the longest and Back to that kind of podcasting point that you made, I don't think you can actually have a successful podcast that's listened to by tens or hundreds of thousands of people if you just talk about boxing. It's just not, as you made the point earlier, it's not a big enough sport and people don't care enough. People just don't want to hear. If boxing stories talking about you know, boxers talking about their careers or talking about the issues in boxing. There's only so much that you can say. You can watch a few videos or you can listen to a few podcasts and they cover a lot of the same things. And it also goes back to the point, once I've seen the fight, I don't necessarily need to have a lengthy breakdown of what happened in the fight on a week-by-week basis because that would have been done in the studio afterwards. You might listen to one other view of that but then that's it I can't listen to four or five breakdowns of what happened in fights or cards 
Okay. Again, we can we can take that a step further. And we can say, what's happened in boxing? This is what's happened in boxing. Fans now want to be part of the whole edifice of boxing, right? So I'm a I'm a boxer. Mm, not very good. Light welterweight, lightweight, like a Danny Connor. Just n- not very good, not particularly interesting. Just just a fish and chip boxer, right? In fight week, I'm gonna have six or seven people with their phones or their 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 cannons or their Nikons and their little branded microphones, putting microphones in my face, asking me to talk about stuff. So after a while, you've heard everything I have to say, because number one, I'm not that interesting. And this is probably true for most boxers. I am not that interesting. I lead a monastic life. What do you want me to tell you? So you've got that problem. You've got the problem that there's so much of this content just leaking out. Number two, so much of it's on Twitter as well, that there's nothing, you're not holding anything back that would be really good content. Whereas if you look at things like the NFL, they have tightly controlled press engagements. So you can't just go up to, oh God, who, who, do we, who can we reference at this point? Like a Russell Wilson. You can't just go up to Russell Wilson yeah. and go, do you know what, mate? I'm a guy that does a podcast in the bedroom. Can I just get you on for half an hour? Russell Wilson's like, you got to talk to my manager. And the manager's making all sorts of strategic decisions. I said, nah, you're not quite the fit we're looking for. So when Russell Wilson does speak, it's to a small number of outlets. It's not that often. So when there's always something to tell. In boxing, these guys are just talking all the time. There's nothing Hearn could... Imagine trying to do an interview now with Hearn and you're like, there's nothing you can tell me. Because either you've been lying on every other of your interviews up until this point, or if you have been telling the truth, then Jesus, there's nothing I need to know about you now. I've seen it all twice a week for the last 10 years. And that's where boxing coverage is just hit this wall of so much of it's for free and so much of it is of poor quality that we're, we're, there's nothing there for it. It's not a big enough market. Uh, it just doesn't make sense. And I know you're still, you still got your links to Boxing Social. That's why you're, 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 you're treading the middle ground on this one. But I look at things like Boxing Social and I go, you're trying to, you're trying to build yourself into being the number two or the number one broadcaster in boxing. And I'm like, you know what? That's like me trying to be the smartest person in this room right now. Man. I'm just kind of sat here on my own. What the fuck does it matter? In the big scheme of things, what does it matter? And that's how I feel about boxing at the moment, where I go, what, what are we really doing this for? In, the, in, in this lockdown, boxing hasn't given the fans enough back to justify Eddie Hearn trying to revive it. Like, all we've wanted is to watch boxing again. Actually, I haven't wanted to watch boxing. I haven't wanted to watch anything boxing-related because no one's given me a reason to. And that's on the boxers themselves and the people who advised them. They, when we needed them, they went missing and they hid from us. And as fans, they should, we should make them pay the price. It, your point about um, access is an interesting one because I think it was years ago I wrote a piece on the New Age Boxing website, which Martin runs. So much better than the what, other one you wrote for. <laughs> the uh, it was a uh, it was about saying why Chris Eubank Jr. has the best PR profile in the UK from a boxing perspective, and he focused very much on the idea that he doesn't give you access. So every time 
he does put out content or he does an interview or something else, it's always something that you really want to look forward to and read or listen or watch a video. Because you won't find Chris Eubank Jr. doing many interviews outside of five weeks for any boxing outlet. He'll only do it for national media and he'll only and he has this mystique about him because we don't see much about him, so we're always interested to hear more about him. Whereas most other boxers, the way how they think to build a fan base is just do as many interviews on boxing outlets as possible, uh, tweet a lot to the boxing community. You just communic- you're just communicating in the one small eco chamber. You're not actually expanding your reach. And I think he's done a great job of making himself more of a cultural icon outside of boxing. I mean, my missus knows who he is. She won't know who most other boxers are, Dillian White or many others, because he's actually tapped into the, you know, he's tapped into the broader kind of consumer population, which a lot of other boxers haven't been able to do. I appreciate his dad is Chris Eubank Sr., but despite that, he hasn't fallen down traps that a lot of other boxers have where they just think about what can I do to raise my profile in the boxing community? And as an example, somebody that's done really well recently is Isaac Chamberlain. I mean, he's built a good relationship with Don McRae. He's been covered in The Guardian. Um, and his profile must be higher than many world champions in this country. Well, ooh, there's a lot to get in there. So what makes Eubank unique is... Eubank's almost like a celebrity who can box. He's, he's like an authentic KSI. He's a privately educated kid from a good background and a good family. He's from relative privilege, but he's still mm-hmm. a dog in the ring. He's still got that dog in him that says, I want to hurt someone. And I love that because you can't manufacture that. You cannot manufacture what Chris Eubank Jr. has. But all those other elements about him mean that he understands the game because he's from the establishment. He knows how the game works. Scarcity is everything. It's why, look, let's be honest. If you found out Jay-Z was doing a sit-down interview now, you'd go and listen. If Beyonce was yeah. doing a sit-down interview now, you'd go and listen. That's how you have impact. Doing an IFL interview every week, we know you're talking out your backside because no, one, no one's got that kind of content. All these, all these things that happen where... And I can remember a boxing outlet going, well, if Cougar's going to have all the big guys, I want to invest in these relationships that are on the way up. And I remember just thinking, even at that time, I was thinking, you're making this out like it's a big deal. (laughs) Boxing's not that deep. As my friend Frankie Hanratty would say, it's like Sunday League football in a lot of ways, man. It's, It's something people enjoy, but if it went away, you'd find something else to do. And... Eubank understands that. So Eubank just goes, right, this is when I need to engage with the boxing market. And at this point, I need to go and live my life. But what he's also really good at is he delivers really good content. So if you look at some of the shots he's fired at Lily Allen, Billy Joe Saunders and so forth, Eubank's just, he's just cutting like that. And it's, it's all done with no emotion to the point where you don't know what makes him happy or what makes him sad. He's just Chris Eubank Jr., and he's been so good at that that it's made him a millionaire many times over. And people in boxing want to be associated with him. He's never thrown himself at anyone. And I really respect that. 
So do you think the conventional norms of building a fan base in boxing are wrong? So what managers, other people around boxing advise how to build a fan base, forget about ticket sales, but just to build a fan base have been wrong because they actually haven't evolved in the last 20, 30 years. So let's let's go back to the to the, the early days. The early days. Oh God, I can't even get my words out. And I'm going to go back to what I learned about how you become a ticket seller. And it was generally accepted. You started off in school, right? You built your profile in school. So you're boxing to school, boy. You build your profile up in school. You might get announced in assembly. You might persuade people to come and watch. But you build a name for yourself in your local school, and it kind of diffuses out. And this worked well at a time when, especially in inner London, families lived quite close to each other. Um, I think Ted Cheeseman's a prime example of this, where his dad really pushed him when he boxed for the Fisher. So when Ted had his first senior bout, I mean, I think they probably did about 200 tickets for that. That's insane for a boxer, an amateur boxer who's having his first senior bout. So it was always about building your local community. It gets harder over time because I think we're more atomized as a society. The other option was to build an affiliation like Kevin Mitchell did through a football club, so West Ham. David Hay kind of did it with Millwall. And others have done it through clubs like Arsenal, QPR, and so forth. And so these were the traditional ways because you knew you could get 100 tickets sold that way. Now time's moved on and people assume that social media is a shortcut to that, but it isn't. It's not. You have to start building your relationships when you start boxing. This is what people don't realize, and it's a mistake they all make. By the time you turn pro, you should be able to write down at least 50 people you know for a fact will buy a ticket off you. The other 50 and beyond, you can kind of try and persuade people over time. But that core 50, you should be able to name before you turn pro. And then a year after, that should be 120 people, and so forth. If you don't have that, then you need to find a rich backer. So Richie Riakpour, I think, has a guy called Ike Latif backing him. And I know, I know Ike's kids, and they're like, I think they're into investment banking. Ike Latif owns the hotel round the back of Clapham Junction Station on the river. I think it's called Banyan on the Thames or whatever it is. Oh no, Hotel Raphael, that's it. So, I mean, you've got someone there of means who's backing you. So he's not buying £100 tickets, he's buying ringside. That's why he was able to do like 20 odd grand's worth of tickets. So they're the ways you really build up a fan base. You either have loads of people backing you who have backed you from day one, or you find someone with enough money to back you. All other models fall over because you need that model to sustain you until you're televised. And once you're televised, it's all on you. But I'm going to ask you, Riku. Name me seven boxers. Pick seven at random, but name seven boxers you find interesting to the point where you'd sit down and have a beer with them. <laughs> well, that's a tricky one. Uh, I think Chris Eubank Jr. is definitely top of that list. Um, thinking about British boxers, I think Richard Riakpo is a very interesting guy. Been listening to him talking about life, um, his journey, and just his views on wider society, which are very interesting. I think the challenge for me to name the law boxers who I'd sit down and have a beer with, apart from talking about boxing, I don't have much in common with them or many common interests. So unless you can talk to me about something which isn't boxing, 
I'm aware that you're interested in. I'm not particularly interested in talking to you outside of boxing, you know, outside of boxing context. And this is my point. I was speaking to, you know, it sounds like I'm snitching here, but I was speaking to Umar Sadiq about this very point earlier in the week. Where I was just saying, you have to be about more than boxing. Boxing should, boxing should be an important part of your life, but it shouldn't be your whole life. Because once you're more than just boxing, you can insert yourself in a number of different demographics. You can insert yourself in a number of different discussions in the wider media. So you could be on Loose Women like Eubank Jr. was, and you could talk about things that aren't boxing related. And you can build a connection with people who will then come to your product eventually. And it's like I said before, when I was talking about podcasting, when you're a giver, when you say, actually, if I give willingly at a time I need people to buy, they will remember that I gave when I didn't have to. And that's when they will reward me. And I think the best boxers do that. They give. But they don't give willy-nilly. They give intelligently. So I look at Joshua. Joshua doesn't give. And his fan base is essentially built on the fact that they're trying to create the superhero that kids will buy into and all this sort of stuff. But we're looking for someone who will sit down and talk on a Graham Norton show about getting his face punched in and talk about how he had to pretend to be happy for Ruiz when deep down he was livid. We're looking for that. And that's why Joshua's never really captured the hearts of the country. Look, we still talk about his performance against Klitschko. We're, we're over three years past that now. And he hasn't delivered anything. Whereas in contrast, look at Tyson Fury. Fury just gives. Gives, gives, gives. And everything Fury gives is of value because it's not willy-nilly. And, and so now you're starting to see Tyson Fury become the bigger name in the national consciousness than Anthony Joshua. Which has made things very difficult for Mr. Edward Hearn now because it's hard to talk down Fury like he was doing a year and a half ago. And, it's, and you know, as Wilder rebuilds his reputation, you'll start to see that with Wilder as well, where you have to expose that vulnerability now and you have to give. And so as you give, you shall receive. And you're going to start seeing that where Josh is going to get left behind because he doesn't give. I'd like Dillian to give more as well. There's this thing of always being in tough guy mode. That's another thing boxing needs to get away from because I'm bored of these guys having these 10-year careers of being the tough guy. And then we've had to sit through these interviews about how they were depressed for, for seven years. And I'm like, the lesson learned from that is you've just got to be your authentic self. And it will either connect with the fans or it won't. You don't have a right to be successful in life. You you touch upon an interesting word you just said there. You said talk down. And I always find it interesting in boxing, the culture very much driven by Eddie Hearn and others is you talk down on your opposition. And I feel like if you're talking down other athletes in boxing constantly, you devalue in the sport as a whole. And I think that's one of the big barriers sort of for boxing growth is that it's all about, you know, they fire shots to each other, I'm not talking about calling out other fighters, but just talking down other competition 
thinking that that's something that actually drives the numbers for their platforms or their fighters. And conventional wisdom doesn't work that way. If you look at business, for example, let's use BT and Sky as an example. On the Sky channel, they're not going to be talking down BT on a constant basis. They are rivals, but actually it's forced as well both people profit and the big challenge in boxing is we when we talk about the heavyweights all we've heard is Hearn talking down uh, Fury and Wilder Fury and Wilder you know they building up each other and actually both of their profiles has grown, have grown as a result and that's where boxing I think there's a big challenge because you end up becoming divided as fans and you end up just not building the sport in a uniform way. It doesn't seem to be in anybody's interest to try and build the sport as one. It's only quite the short termism mentality where boxers are looking to boxers and promoters just looking to get their own interest without realizing that if the sport grows, that's in everyone's interest. So I've heard from an interesting source that Fury and Wilder have made more money since they fought the first time to now than Joshua has. Like, individually made more money. Now, where that money ultimately goes in terms of percentages and so forth, I can't speak to. But those headline figures, those guys are making more money at the moment than Joshua is. And if they fight for number three, both men will make more money than Joshua will again. And the reason for that is fans reward you when you fight who you're supposed to fight. Win, lose, or draw. Doesn't matter. We just know that Wilder and Fury should be fighting each other. We know Joshua and Fury should be fighting each other. Therefore, these things need to happen. And when Hearn disrespects Wilder, what he's doing is he's taking money off the table. I was talking to a boxer, let me not name names at this point, but he was talking about his, his, own, his domestic rival and he was quite disparaging about him. And my advice to him was, never say that in the media. Even if you think you can beat him easily, even if you think he's an idiot, you don't like him, he's this, he's that, fine. Talk him up. Yes, agreed. Be because you will both eat off that you will both get more money and there'll be a second fight. If you talk him up and the fight's good, there'll be a second fight. If you talk him down, what you're saying to the fans is, why should I watch this? Oh, he's a bum. He's never really beaten anyone. He's slow. He hasn't got a chin. He's this, he's that. Okay, why am I watching the fight? Oh, just, just to watch you beat up on someone who you've already told me you'll beat easily. Nah, not for, not for 100 quid, mate. Does, make, does not make any sense to me. I watch it on TV at home. So boxers don't realize it, it's self-defeating. Right? You've got to keep the money on the table. And keeping the money on the table means both guys look strong. Now as a fan, I'm like, oh, that super middleweight and that super middleweight are going to fight or that super middleweight and that middleweight who's going to come up to super middleweight are going to fight. Oh, from what I'm hearing, this sounds competitive. I know they don't like each other, but they're being quite measured and respectful. So maybe that's because they know that they're a threat to each other. 
I'm going to watch this. I want to see how this plays out. That's when fights sell. It's like Ben Eubank. You know, Eubank would just not give in to the, to the baiting from Nigel Ben. And it was that sort of tension that made it brilliant. And that's what kept the money on the table. If Eubank had been, I mean, if they'd fought fire with fire, I don't know if it would have had the same effect. You needed that, that person to be reasonable and go, let's keep the money on the table here. Let's not make it emotional. Let's just make this business. And I think Eubank said that. He just said, I never got emotionally involved. Yeah, I, I think those are very valid points. Um, just to pivot into social media and boxing, we've obviously had a lot of social media post developments over the lockdown which has caused a lot of outrage. But one of the things I've noticed is that, you know, that boxing fans have lost the ability to calibrate the magnitude of wrongdoing. So everything seems to garner the same sort of response and you seem to have this cancel culture, whether it's Amo Williams' video sparring, whether it's Devin Haney's comments, whether it's Perry Joe Saunders, and I feel like cancel culture has truly arrived to boxing. And maybe it's just the fans are bored and they just need something to talk about. But what do you think is the impact of this sort of negative cancel culture or, you know, everything becomes the biggest issue in the world if somebody does something wrong? So let's try and separate out these issues. I think that they come from different places but lead to the same place. Emma Williams basically paid the price for the fact that people don't like to share sparring footage, right? Start and end of it. If we saw more sparring videos, we would know that there were more liberty takers in boxing than Emma Williams, right? And there are, there are real liberty takers in boxing. But because it's like, well, mate, we don't show sparring footage. I mean, what goes on in the gym stays in the gym, all right? Just keep it like that. Don't show what's going on behind the scenes, all right? So basically, when you don't see what's going on behind the scenes, you have nothing to measure what Emma Williams did against. Now, I've seen people take the piss in sparring, number one. Number two, I've also seen people use sparring as a means of disciplining someone. So I've seen some horrendous shit happen in sparring. You know, it's not... So what Emma Williams did to me wasn't unusual. What it was, was it was a coach who was used to that happening. Because if you had done that in my gym, I'd have pulled you out the ring. Within, within 30 seconds, if I didn't feel you were listening to me, I'd have been like, Amma, get the fuck out the ring. If you can't show you, the guy in front of you any respect, then get out the ring. That's what I would have done. Now, that's one issue. And I see why people are offended, because without a wider context and a, and a wider data pool, what Amma Williams did looks disgusting. And it was like when Eubank Jr. did it to Taylor Jones, if you remember. But that actually made yeah. Taylor Jones' career. But, you know, it happens a lot in gyms where people get carried away. Because the difference between a guy who's really good and a guy who's kind of area level, we think it's vast because we talk about it like it's miles. But it's not. It's just small margins. So the ability to, to tune that that only comes with experience. And a lot of young guys don't have that experience. So they go in thinking, I don't want to get hurt. And so that's why they spar the way they do. So, but I think the training there should have been stronger and should have managed that better. He, he didn't. 
Billy Joe. I don't even think it's cancel culture with Billy Joe. I think it's fed up culture. It's been the same behavior since 2007, 2008. That's why Terry Edwards lost his job with GB. You know that, don't you? Yeah. Right. That, that 2008 squad was so unruly. Billy Joe, Frankie Gavin, Stephen Simmons was part of that, I think. There was a, there was a the Gale. But I don't think the Gale was the, was the bad guy. Because you have to remember, James kind of snuck in there. Because no one ever really rated him. And I know, I know it sounds weird, considering we're just past the anniversary of him winning a world title. No one really rated the Gale. They didn't rate him because he had lost to this kid, Darren Sutherland, Irish kid, so many times that they were just like, he hasn't got it in him. And so people were favoring George for the, for the slot in GB. They're like, oh, put this George Groves kid in. But Terry Edwards stuck with the Gale. But he was one of the milder characters in that group. The, the hardcore was clearly Gavin, Billy Joe, uh, Simmons was part of that. And there's a few others who were, who were I mean, miscreants is the word. <laughs> so Billy Joe's had this for 12 years. We've had these episodes. So, so it is, people are just fed up of it. It's like how many warnings, how many bans, how many fines does someone need before you realize what I'm doing is turning a lot of people off. Like, Billy Joe will be broke. Like, if Billy Joe's career ended now, he'd be broke in a few years. He hasn't made that much money. And mostly that comes down to the fact that he doesn't manage his perception properly. And he doesn't understand that to, to all of us, he's a commercial entity. Billy Joe, the person, neither here nor there on. You know, Billy Joe the boxer, I was high on for a while, but look, you know, Emma Williams has called him out and I'd quite like to see that sparring session because I think for three or four rounds, Emma Williams will terrorize him. You know, the longer it goes, the more it favors Billy, but in a short sprint, I, th I think Billy might be in for a world of hurt. But so you look at that and boxing fans do want to be offended. And that's down to the fact that there's nothing else to do. So you get offended and you feel that if you can express more outrage than the other guy, you'll get more likes and you'll get more attention. Because boxing fans, much like boxers, are pretty insecure people and they need that constant validation. But for me, this is the board's job. The board should be disciplining this. The board should be driving higher standards. You shouldn't be given a license if you can't demonstrate an ability to behave if you cannot demonstrate an ability to adhere to the anti-doping guidelines, all these sorts of things, that's how you should get cancelled. You should just never be allowed to box. But you know what would happen? Promoters would just get you another license and you go and do it elsewhere. Because ultimately, no, yeah. one, no one cares about the rules if they get in the way of making money. But do you think that Alan Williams sparring is any worse than the doghouse sparring in the Mayweather gym, as an example? Because I think our sparring references are Chris Eubank Jr., Taylor Jones, Amo Williams, Doghouse footage, then a few, you know, sparring footages here nor there where people are relatively competitive sparring. Because we we have such a limited access to seeing sparring. Uh, and I think in the last episode we spoke about Chris Eubank Jr. and Fox sparring that we don't really have a sample size that we can make a good case. But to me, what we what you see at the doghouse, that's boring, that they played in one of the all-access clips all those years ago. 
where people are effectively asked to spar without breaks for a long period of time, that to me is probably worse than what we're seeing, you know, somebody bashing up someone else and sparring that they overmatched again. No, that's better. I'd rather, I'd rather it was a 30-minute stretch because no one has power for 30 minutes. So those punches you're throwing after about five minutes, they don't, they don't hurt. I know people go, nah, that's not true. Those punches, when you've got those 16-ounce gloves on and you're knackered and all you're doing is just swinging, those are those pub fight punches and all you're doing is just trying to show that you've got heart. That's preferable to what Ammo was doing. Ammo was taking this guy apart and they, they were the kind of shots that that guy's going to feel for days afterwards. And you don't want that. And I don't think that would have happened in the Mayweather gym because I don't think... How can I put it? Gyms have cultures. So, like, if you look at Fitzroy Lodge, like, when we have sparring, we don't like piss takers. Like, we just do not like piss takers. I, I'll pull you out the ring. I've done it before. And I lose my temper. When I see you taking the piss, now, after I've warned you, I lose my temper. I'll just be saying, get the fuck out the ring. Even if, you're, even if your parents are there watching, I'll tell you, get out the fucking ring. And I'll tell your parents, that's absolutely disgraceful. We don't have that. Because it's like bullying, you know? And you have to learn that this is part of your boxing education. So, look, every so often, you know, if I'm working from home, I might pop down to the gym for a lunchtime workout. And someone might say to me, look, can you just do three rounds with this woman here? I can't batter her. So I'll go into that ring knowing I'm going to take more shots than I would, than I would usually but I understand that she's not going to learn any other way. So my job in that ring is to go, what can I do to make sure that she learns as much out of this experience as she can? So I will. I'll just let her know, listen, your hands are low. You're going to get hit there. You're going to get hit there. You're going to get hit there while I'm taking shots and keep me making sure that I stay sharp. But there are different cultures. I've also been in other boxing clubs where sparring has to be brutal. Like you can't, you no feeling out, just in there straight at it. I don't, and I'm torn now, because the, the heart sparring is good for intensity, but after a while you burn out, and I saw kids just burning out, because they were like, fuck, every Monday and every Wednesday, we just got to go at it, and people would burn out. Whereas I think at the lodge, we just limit it, man. You're going to do probably six to eight rounds a week, tops, and that's enough. You know, we, we're managing... The, we've been managing that concussion risk since Mick Carney was at the gym. Like, if you, if you do it right, you shouldn't need more than three or four rounds. The reason people like to do 10 or 12 rounds of sparring is because they're lazy and they're unfocused. That's the reality of it. Because if I said to, look, if I got a boxer, I said, mate, you've got one round of sparring today. That's all. They will box or their life depends on it. I tell you that for nothing. If I tell you you got 10 rounds, seven of those will be shit. Three will be good, seven will be shit. To the point where you'll think, why do we have those seven rounds? But the problem is, those seven rounds won't happen in sequence. They'll kind of, you know, you have, the first one will be really good, then you'll have a couple of really shit ones, then you'll have a really good one after the energy systems are back up, then you'll have some more shit ones, then you'll have another good one and a couple of shit ones. And that's kind of how it works. And then I just want to bring it back to what Emma Williams. What he did was take take the piss, and it's out of order, but he isn't the only one. Don't worry, Billy Joe has a reputation for it too. You know, 
He really does. He has a reputation as a bully in the ring. That's, you know, let's not, let's not, let's not get in the way of virtue signaling for Billy Jeff Saunders, huh? <laughs> or Anthony Fowler, for that matter. Oh, did um, he pipe up? What, what, what did he say? I can't remember. He said something about how disgusting it was. Obviously, he jumped on the bandwagon. He needs to be careful. Ammo might come back to the UK looking for him. And, and, and yeah, that would be a good fight. I'd love to see that fight. Yeah, I, I, I'm willing to take it. Now he'd rip his head off. I don't think this has done bad for Amos profile, to be honest. You see, I think a lot of people will want to see him get beat now, and that will just garner more interest than before. So I've known Austin Williams for about four years now. If you're really switched on and you can go back and remember the New Age Boxing episode where someone said, name your best prospect. And I said, there was a kid, Amma Williams, who's going to box for the US in 2020, who's special. I think this might have been in 20, 2017, 2018. Because him and I have been talking since just after the Olympics. Great young kid. Wasn't that the Ammo Gloves? You and Ammo Gloves? Hey, I told James, who, who, who ran or runs Ammo, I told him, Send this kid a pair of gloves. He's going all the way. They dithered. Now look. That, that would have been the perfect synergy. So, it's funny. Uh, one of the questions I've noted down is the other thing I've seen on social media is you have this rise of sort of disparage, disparaging comments towards female boxers and... Um, just females doing the sports. And I wondered, what's your take on, do actually boxing fans want to see any female boxing? I think the answer to that is probably no. But do you think the boxing establishment wants to have female boxing or is this a part of this movement where sporting, you know, you know, sporting networks want to promote female sports and get more females involved in different sports? Um, so that's a very long way of going around the question of who wants female boxers and what's your take on that? Okay, so let's start with the high-level principle. The more you love women, the more women will love you. And what I mean by that is when you exude positive energy to women and around women, they feed off that. And that's when they will respect you. That's when they will love you. The minute you you'd move away from that, the minute you start saying things like women can't do this or you start disrespecting them, you won't get women anywhere. Like that, that energy is toxic to women. They hate that energy. And so my take on it is anyone that wants to be involved in something should be able to do it without barriers. As long as you've got the work ethic, the passion and the dedication, nothing should get in your way. And I saw a couple of female boxers yesterday coming out of the gym. Um, one of them, I think you know, Riku, but I'm not going to name We got, can't name names because I don't think they publicized it. But <laughs> I was just literally, I, I was cycling. So I, was cycling I was cycling from Fitzroy Lodge down towards Vauxhall. I probably just snitched on myself. Fuck. Um, <laughs> I want to stop there. <laughs> but I saw a couple of young ladies. And they're coming out of the boxing gym. And I was just happy. Because I, I, I was asking who else was training, and there was, it, was just them, it was just those two. And I was like, there you go, man. You guys are putting in the work while the guys are sat at home enjoying the sun. And I was like, 
listen, I hope it goes well for both of you. And I genuinely feel strongly for both. And I want both to do well um, in, what, in whichever direction they choose to go. And, and I was happy. When I saw them, I was happy. Like, legit happy. As a guy who's trained women in various guises from F FTSE 100 CEOs to young girls who are, I mean, who are just trying to define themselves as young women. I've, I've, I've covered it all. Young female offenders, all of it. My only thing is, I'm going to demand you give as much as these guys do. If they have to put in 100%, so do you. I'm sensitive around, you know, obviously women and men are different. And there are just times where women just would rather be anywhere else in the boxing gym. But they get the same value. So, look, I've met women in my life who have come to boxing because they're in an abusive relationship, trained their nuts off, got that self-confidence to realize that they're not worthless, they're not weak, they're not scared. And once they've done that, they just left the sport. They still have an affection for boxing, but they just don't feel the need to train anymore because that emotional need is no longer there. That's fine as well. However you want to come into the sport, as long as when you're in it, you're dedicated to it. And once you leave it, you still love it. I have no issue. And if you want to be an announcer, do it. If you want to be a judge, do it. If you want to be a commentator, do it. All these things I have no issue with. Go and pursue your dreams as a woman. Go and pursue your dreams as a person. If, if there's someone out there disrespecting you for doing it, why don't they do it? Like, there's no barriers to being involved in boxing. I am living proof of this. You know, I went from a guy that quite liked boxing and I trained in it and so forth to at one point being at the heart of what was good about British boxing. Not because I had a divine right to. I just took my opportunities when they came. And no one wanted me to. You know what I mean? People in my own club were hating on me. They know that. I know they know that. And we have, you know, we've spoken about it. They were hating on me. But you do it. And you do it because it's what you want to do. And you're willing to pay whatever price it takes. So shouts out to the women out there grafting. Shouts out to the women putting it on the line. Yeah, And if you're one of those people who's like, w women shouldn't be involved in boxing, just, mate, you get the fuck out the sport. Do you know what I mean? You, we don't want you. That's who we don't want. Because it's, boxing's just the power of good for everyone, man. The more people that do it, the more the sport grows. If having women in boxing means that we sold 50% more tickets overall, then everyone eats off that. Bloody hell, like... Don't people realize they're being self-defeating? Now, there's another discussion about the standard of female boxing and whether it's where it should be. And my answer to that is no. And the reason I yeah, say I think that is... Yeah, the gap yeah, I think that topic you've covered quite a lot before, um, that topic, so... So one of the things but I do yeah, want to add, ahead. though, one of the things I do want to add on it, though, I'd love for the big promoters, so Hearn... Heyman, Warren, uh, whack MTK in there as well. Oh, Sowlands as well. I'd love for the big promoters to make a conscious pact after the next Olympics. In those Olympic weight classes, you're going to take the quarterfinalists. All the quarterfinalists get signed if they want to. Because what I'm tired of is we, we, we pick female boxers off one at a time. You look. 
Katie Taylor, then it was Chantal Cameron, then it was this one, then it was that one. Get them all out at the same time. Get them boxing rough, roughly in the same time frame. Because then you're signposting the fights we're going to see. Right now, I don't know where anyone's career is going. I want to know. That's the problem. I want to know where people's careers are going because that's how we get invested, right? So when you look at Daniel Dubois, subconsciously, we're all thinking, at some point, he's got to fight Joshua, right? That's what we're thinking. When you see Anthony Fowler, well, when you did before, you're like, mm, at some point, he's got to fight Ted Cheeseman. And you're already thinking that. Conor Ben. At some point, Conor Ben's got to fight Josh Kelly. Now, I can't do that with Katie Taylor, and I can't do that with Chantal Cameron, but I want to. That's, that's how you get me engaged. That's how you get me banging the drum when I've got that kind of story arc built into my head. And I think that will only work when the promoters get together and agree to sign all the female talent that comes up the Olympics. And then you'll see the standard go through the roof. Yeah, I agree with you on that one. And just to add on the point of um, having women in boxing, I always find it very sad because when Michelle Joy Phelps or anybody else posts anything on whether it's on YouTube or whether it's on Twitter, you always have this barrage of comments from these virgins posting about their looks or criticizing them for being in boxing or, you know, calling them names. I think it only reflects badly on them. It doesn't reflect badly on the person doing the stuff because people still watch the stuff and, you know, they're doing it out there to, for boxing fans to enjoy and whether it's a man or a woman interviewing Tyson Fury, I couldn't give two shits, frankly, because when we have football interviews and you have Alex Scott or whoever else interviewing your favourite footballer, the first thing you don't think is who's interviewing them and whether that offends you, you're more worried about the actual content and who's been interviewed, Robin, who's been interviewing, and I just think it's quite juvenile and a sad state of affairs. And the same, I mean, we spoke with this at boxing events when we go there with, whether it's with Winnie or Lauren or whoever else, you know, there's always somebody that has to make a silly comment of why are women watching boxing? You wouldn't have that in a football game. So I just think it's outdated and just frankly just, pretty pathetic from the people that make those kind of comments. So here's a weird thing, right? Like, you know how tight me and Winnie are. Yeah. So you can imagine what I've told her. Right? You can imagine yes. what I've told <laughs> her. Yes. So, so for anyone to question what Winnie knows about boxing, her only answer should be to point at me and go, you see what that guy knows there? About 65% of that. Because it's true, which like, is more than most fans on Twitter. Yeah, and then another thing people don't realize: Lauren has like a Rain Man knowledge of boxing. Like honestly, like a Rain Man knowledge, like Raymond Babbitt level knowledge of boxing. She just doesn't talk it up. But she will. She she will come up with some random stuff. Like you're like, how do you even know about that? So. Don't underestimate women who are passionate enough to step into the bear pit that is boxing and stay there. They're made of something different, man. They're made of something different. And you've got to respect that. 
Yeah. Wait, wait, wait. Stop, Sorry, stop, stop, stop. How can I forget talking <laughs> about Brooke? Woohoo. Apologies, Brooke. Like, look at Brooke Streptville. Now, I am confident Brooke could tell you 80% of the Haringey Box Cup winners of the last six years. Brooke can watch a Frank Warren show and tell you a story about every one of those guys coming up. Like, there's another person whose knowledge is so deep, like, you can't, you can't step to her. You can't. Like, you, you, you cannot, man. Like, there's certain times where, she, you know what I mean, like, we'll start talking about stuff and I'll be like, Brooke, you're, you're taking me to the limit of my knowledge here. You know what I mean? But another, <laughs> another person, so between Winnie, Brooke, and Lauren, man, three women I respect in the sport. They're not the only ones. But I respect the fact that they came into the sport and said, I ain't leaving till I'm ready to leave. And I respect that mindset. Well, person, I couldn't agree with you more about those three people. A uh, couple of more questions. Um, the favorite topic of our friend Big Ross, John Fury. Uh, so, do you think the coverage around John Fury and Mickey Theo, um, you know, fighting, whether it's for the NHS or just in John Fury's backyard or outside somewhere where Mickey Theo lives, do you think it makes a mockery of boxing? At a sort of, not the boxing fan level, but beyond that, that there's actually, this could be entertained and this, grab, this grabs headlines. We don't see... Harry's, um, what's it called? Harry's boys going around Europe, which is our TV show where all the old footballers go and play against other countries for laugh. We don't see that being something that's seriously discussed in the context of football, but in boxing, it always seems to be these types of fights do make the headlines and probably garner more interest than they should do. Do you think that's a reflection of boxing or? And do you also think that's not good for the sport? Ooh. Hmm. So I remember when I was young and to be the, the biggest, toughest guy was the coolest shit you could do, right? It was. It was mm -hmm. to, be, to be Samuel Jackson, to be Jimmy Townsend, to be Delroy, to be all of these guys back in the day. That was the... The pinnacle. And as you get older, you realize, A, that's quite an empty life. B, it's a limited lifespan. C, there are more ways you can garner self-esteem. I think with fighters, what happens is when they become known for fighting and their physical capabilities to fight decline, there's nothing to fill it with. And so John Fury, that's why he keeps telling you, I'm a fighting man, I'm a fighting man. It's all he has. Like, John Fury's not a musician. He's not a poet. I don't know what else he can do. But there's nothing that will make him as famous as being John Fury, the fighting man. And so he hangs on to that. It's the same with that Mickey Theo. Like, after you've been taking all those steroids and you've been a doorman, you probably lived the most exciting years of your life. And now you're, you're just trying to chase those again. And... There should be a place for that, providing it's safe and it's healthy. So I have no issue. If someone said John Fury and Mickey Thea were going to do three two-minute rounds, get out their system on like a, like a Goodwin show, fine, do it. 
But let's not portray this as anything more serious than it is. It's just a bunch of old guys trying to rekindle their youth. Now, should they be better than that? Should they be bigger than that? Potentially. But it is what it is. Like, contrast John Fury with Peter Fury. And just look at how the two men conduct themselves. And for me, Peter Fury is how you should be as an elder statesman in boxing. Doesn't speak much, but when he does, it moves the sport forward. So big respect to, to Peter Fury for that. In terms of this fight with Mickey Theo, even if John Fury wasn't a good pro, I think he, he, he could easily one-punch this guy, and then, then it starts to get dangerous. But it's a, it's a freak show that I could do without, to be honest with you. Well, Puck, um, finally, I know you've extensively written and talked about Michael Jordan and Last Dance, uh, which is, I think your views on that have been very interesting and excellent. So what I want to talk about is, obviously Jordan's leadership style was seen as something that was quite intense for a lot of people, and you know he had a winning mindset. What do you think boxers can glean from that, and what do you think they can take to their own profession? Perfect your craft. Like, forget Jordan's leadership style for a second. He was so technically good. That was what that was the difference maker. And because he was so technically good, his technique didn't fail him in crucial moments. And I think boxers forget this. It's not about the flashy combinations. It's actually about can your fundamentals hold out for 12 rounds of a fight? That's question number one. I always ask people because that mental fatigue of having half-assed your whole career will catch up with you under pressure in a 12-round fight. So the thing with Jordan, these youngsters should be learning, is perfect your craft. Make sure your jab is 10 out of 10, your footwork's 10 out of 10, your backhand's 10 out of 10, and your lead hook is 10 out of 10. After that, once you've perfected those, then you want to get into scenarios of being brave and being creative in how you use all of that. That's the difference maker. The third element is demand more of yourself than anyone else is demanding from you. You have to have that mindset. So you have to have a mindset of, if I'm going to run the 100 meters in 10.5, I can't be happy with that. And it's always got to come down. I think they're the key elements. You know, punching your teammates in the face and stuff, you can kind of do without those. But I think if you can operate with those core principles, you'll go far in life. Because it raises questions around, are there gym cultures that are like the Chicago Bulls of the 90s? And I'd argue they probably are, especially in America. Gyms are very intense places. They're savage places. But they have to be because of what you're about to do. You couldn't, you couldn't have a gym be a nice place. And you couldn't have a gym full of people that are mentally weak. So you have to have an environment that automatically weeds out those who aren't suitable. And that doesn't mean that they don't deserve to be there. It just means, look, the things you want out of life, you're not going to accomplish through boxing because your mindset isn't where it needs to be. But they can always come back to it. But that's, they're the things I'd take. And for the record, I just before anyone tries to tell me The Last Dance is the best ever ESPN documentary, I'm struggling to put it in the top five. 
So what are the other ones? 30 for 30, obviously. Well, The U, number one. Number one ESPN documentary of all time is The U. That's it. The, the U, and then um, I'm going to give Winnie credit for this one because I've forgotten about this one. They're 9.79. So the one about Ben Johnson in 1988 is brilliant. OJ Simpson made in America, brilliant. I like the U part too. I think, I think the U is so good, you wanted to know what happened afterwards. So they gave us a sequel to that. And then the one about Brian Bosworth is really interesting as well. So there's, there's loads of them. And so it comes back to what we talked about right at the beginning of the episode. The broadcasters who will survive are the ones that give us that kind of content where I can watch that in lieu of live sport. You're not showing me reruns of games I've already seen. It's these documentaries. And yes, I've watched them before. But I feel you can always watch those documentaries because as you get older and as you live more, your perspective changes. So you start to see different things in these documentaries over time. Just touching on your point about having a tough German culture, do you think having uh, Keefe Fertis or, you know, people that keep fitting those gyms, you can create that tough environment? You know, we talk about, we hail the Ingle gym as a great example where pros train alongside amateurs or train alongside people that just come to keep fit. Do you think you can create that similar demanding elite environment unless it's a private gym or just a pro gym? I think sometimes this gets confused and people believe anyone can just walk through the door. And that's nominally true. But if your gym's clued up, you'll have minimum standards regardless of whether you're a keep fitter, you're an amateur, you're a pro. There'll be minimum standards you've got to stick to. They're pretty exacting. So you're not, you're not going to last long. If you walk into a gym at like 28 stone and say, I'm coming to train so I can lose weight, it's not going to work for you because you're carrying that much weight that you're a heart attack risk in a boxing gym. So you'd have to actually go and shed the weight before you could come in. So the, so the culture will remain tough, whether you're a keep fit or not, whether you're white collar or not. It's those minimum values are everything in a gym because that's when you find out who you are. It's being tested that way that you find out who you are. Some people come into a gym, they do one session and they go, nah, this is too intense for me. I need something a bit mellower. And they might go and take up art or something. I don't know. But then there are other people who just thrive in that. Male, female, young, old, they just thrive in that. And yeah, look, people tend to miss it when it goes. And that's one thing I love about boxing. Everyone misses the camaraderie. And here's, here's one of the things I believe. The boxers who do well in their career tend to be in environments that mirror amateur gyms. The ones who struggle will start to struggle when they have their own gym and it's just them and their team in there. That's when you start to struggle because there's nothing like the energy of a packed gym and the noise and the conversations that are happening, the trash talking, the jokes, the, the hugs, the support, the love, the complex emotions that happen in a boxing gym. It lifts everyone up. So when you then isolate yourself in your own gym, where do you get that from? 
Yeah, that's an interesting point. Um, I think that's my question. Um, I think it was more of a conversation rather than a Q&A, but hopefully people enjoyed that. And I think we touched upon a list of topics that you've, that have happened over the recent weeks and also some forward-looking stuff and interesting stuff. So I think for me, the only thing I'd say similar to last time is make sure you subscribe, make sure you share because a lot of people listen to the content. But again, with the Larry episode, you were citing the numbers but we didn't have the same sharing and engagement that we had probably when you and I did the episode, just because you weren't remind because you weren't reminding people to listen and share. So be one of those guys that gives guys or women that gives back uh, to the podcast by sharing, and it's not you know it's free again. It's a free thing to do. So make sure you do that. And uh, thanks for giving us content, Terry. And if you do get to one hundred. Uh, I'll buy you the drinks the next time. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> look, look, and just to echo your point, by the time this goes out, it'll be about one hour, 40 minutes long. That's 100 minutes. I'm only asking that you spare three seconds, one to hit like, one to hit retweet. That's it. Right? And you get one second back for yourself. So just remember, it's a low effort activity, but it shows support and it marks it down. You know, um, to touch on the Larry one, I thought the the reaction to the Larry one's been really, really interesting because a lot of people got hold of me through the back channel. They didn't want to visibly be seen to be having a discussion because obviously it might cast a light of suspicion on them. But through the back channels, a lot of people in boxing are like, okay, how bad do you think the problem is? And I've shared my my views on it. And it's like, well, how do you think we can combat it? And I was like, I don't think you can. Not without a massive pot of money, and boxing doesn't have that right now. So as long as boxing knows that it can get away with it, you keep it to a tight, controlled group of people that procure the substances, I don't think you will ever get caught. And that's a worry. Yeah, I thought that was a brilliant episode, and you know we've talked a lot about this issue off and but despite all of our discussions, it just shed a great light and we were speaking yesterday the way how the episode was structured they gave a platform for Larry to give his his story and talk about broader issues not just be cast as the villain that wants to you know spill the beans and everything I think he did a very good job of that and you know to answer a question I'd love to have him on an episode talking more about his career and just giving his views about boxing because He's an engaging character. He's articulate. You know, he's he's honest. He's he obviously still has links to his sport, but he's removed enough that he can spill the beans without upsetting the apple cart or ruining his own career. And I don't want him to become a pariah in boxing. That was the key thing for me, because it's very easy to dismiss him as a drugs cheat. Ah, oh, he should never make money in boxing. He's a disgrace. He's this. He's that. Nah, 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 nah. As Larry said, and I hope this is what came out of the episode, Larry was just doing what everyone else was doing. He was just trying to get an edge in a sport where you need an edge. It just so happened he was probably just better at it than everyone else. And you shouldn't be punished for being better at something than everyone else. And, and so I'd love to do another episode with him. I think Larry's path to redemption 
should start now, like with, with his mayor culpa. And then it's like, okay, how do you then reintegrate Larry into the sport? Because he's an important voice now. He's the guy that can give us the clearest view on what drugs in boxing look like. He's also the guy that can give us the clearest view on how we can tackle it. And so we need to keep him in the sport. I think too often we kick people out of the sport for no other reason than we don't really understand what we're doing. Here's a time where we can just do the right thing. I think we should. Yeah, that's, I agree. And it's really a case of if the sport wants to tackle this issue, which I don't personally think there's enough people that want to tackle the issue because it's going to cost money. It's also going to expose a lot of people. And yeah, I don't think it's an issue that most people want to tackle. Whether it be the board, whether it be UCAD, whether it be promoters or managers or trainers, it's just not an issue that a majority of people want to tackle. That's my personal view, at least. Uh, they're afraid of what they'll find out. And more importantly, what would this is what would happen. If the truth about doping and boxing came out, the banned boxing brigade would have an open goal. And you'd, you'd see boxing banned. And I think we're in the current, like you said, council culture, where if people could get boxing banned, that'd be a massive feather in their cap. They'd feel they could do anything after that. That's true. But yeah, we're 100 Good. minutes in, mate. We've done well. So to the audience, <laughs> thank you for tuning into this. As always, let, let us know what you think. Like, share, subscribe. Just follow because, like I've said, we've been consistent through this lockdown. Same quality, same entertainment, same fun. So, you know, as, as boxing fans and as fans of just life in general, you know, reward the products that have helped you through this lockdown. Take care, guys. Bye.